I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at $14.99, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Come on, lads, it's time to kick off. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. Harry, what delights have you been troubling the sweet stall for this time? <laughs> I've got Joe Nuts, Dan, um, oh. which I don't know why I feel I feel obliged to say, no, it's just the way I walk or something <laughs> after that. Anyway, the Jaffa Joe Nuts... And for, I don't know if you've seen these. For some reason, uh, Jaffa cake have taken they've taken the Jaffa cake and they've 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 taken the middle out of it and then redistributed the sort of uh, the Jaffa the jam bit round the, the out, round the edges of the outside. I don't know why they've done it. It seems like the sort of thing that would be given to you as punishment if you were naughty at school. Maybe that's what's happened in the Jaffa factory. Someone's someone's been naughty and they've said, "What you're going to do is this entirely pointless task." Anyway, they're called Jaffa Jonuts. And partly the reason that I bought them was because on the on the box it says a new original, suggesting that someone at uh, at McVitie's is a fan of Spinal Tap. I think because <laughs> you would remember that they were they were originally called the Originals, but then they found out there was already a band called the Originals, so they called themselves the New Originals. So I think this this is inspired by that. Um, so if I, I've just eaten one, and if I was going to give it a review in that style, I'd say. Definitely more Stumpy Joe Childs than Derek Smalls. <laughs> a topical time to eat a Jaffa cake. I think they're made in Stockport, who have just come back up to the football league. Was... There you are, Dan. Well, you. I've managed, managed, how you've managed to work a football into that is a really it's a fantastic effort. <laughs> it's one of the loveliest smelling towns in Stockport. I found if, if McVitie's is in production, it's um, it's a lovely thing. Well, see so if you if you get these things, spongy rings with an orangey oomph. Again, something you might go to the doctor with, I suspect. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so enough of that. <laughs> and any other happenings round your way? Well, uh, I was I was at a, a jazz concert the other day, and uh, with the Abbey Finn Trio, they were playing um, th- you know they play kind of Thelonious Monk, uh, Charles Mingusy kind of stuff. And at the interval, the bassist came over and he said, "Sorry, are you Harry Pearson?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Oh, he said I've been reading your stuff ever since you started writing in When Saturday Comes." Oh. And I said, "And I said, oh, do you still read When Saturday Comes?" He said, "I've never stopped." So I thought that was really oh. good, you know, because other football yeah. magazines want to be rock and roll, but when Saturday comes is beatnik, which is better. 
Yes. There you go. And um, on, a, on a, also on a, a musical note, I went, also went to see Brian Jackson, who was uh, Gil Scott Heron's musical collaborator. And it made me think, you know, that Gil, Gil Heron, Gil Scott Heron's father, scored on his debut for Celtic and also played for Third Lanark. And I, is, there a, is there a footballer who's had a child of greater genius than Gil Scott Heron? Um, Jamie Redknapp accepted, obviously. Um, um, moving away from music, I, I spend a lot of time in the in the when football's finished. I spend a lot of time watching um, YouTube videos of men wittering on about the NFL. Um, the the NFL coaches are, are always filled with good aphorisms. Red Sanders, well, obviously, was the man who came up with uh, "winning isn't everything; it's the only thing," and also possibly um, football isn't a matter of life or death. Um, he was the coach of uh, UCLA and another American university. Um, but I, I found a good one the other day that Cal Shanahan, who's the coach of the San Francisco 49ers, he was, uh, there was some criticism that hadn't signed any players recently. And he said, too many people mistake activity for achievement. And that's really good. I'm going to use that next season. <laughs> I'm just going to be saying that. I'm going to say, this referee's mistaking activity for achievement, I'm going to say, and things like that. I think it's actually quite a good motto for life, really. I certainly never mistake activity for achievement, that's for sure. Also, when I, when I was on the train uh, going to Newcastle on Saturday, and it's, very, it's a busy train filled with kind of stag parties going into Newcastle and hen parties going into Newcastle from Carlisle and Holtwistle and places. And a boy got on at the Metro Centre with his mother, and he was wearing a full Premier League referees kit. <laughs> and I thought, this boy, surely this boy's going to walk down here and some lads are going to just start chanting the referee's a wanker and pointing at him, which I was, they didn't, which was good because he was only about 11. But I, I did wonder what sort of adult he's going to grow up into. Mm. Um, I don't know, but if I was the police, I'd certainly keep a watchful eye on him. <laughs> I think he's definitely the type of kid who mixes his Neapolitan ice cream up, isn't he? I think he did. Yes, and then he says it, then it says it's all gets mixed up in your stomach anyway. That's what he says, <laughs> definitely. And also reported in the in when Saturday comes uh, weekly newsletter how Percy Main Amateurs appointed a new manager. I've, I've watched Percy Main a couple of times this season. One of their games, I think I talked about on the podcast, the, the kickoff was delayed due to dog shit in the penalty area. Uh, not something you get at Anfield, I don't suspect. Um, anyway, th- that wasn't at Percy Main's ground, I hasten to add. But Percy Main appointed a new manager and his name is Gavin Hattrick. Um, which is the sort of name that Cyril Fletcher would have read out on This Is Your Life. Uh, Not This Is Your Life, what am I going? That's life, he would have read it out on, uh, along with a greengrocer named Reg Sprout from Stoke Poges. Now, Gavin Hattrick, I I was a bit disappointed because when I first read it, I thought he was called Gary Hattrick, which would almost have been a spoonerism of Harry Catrick. Um, But anyway, if he'd been called Gary Hattrick, that would have been even better, wouldn't it? Also on the short list, um, Neil Overlap, <laughs> um, Steve, Steve Equalizer, perhaps Tony Flickon. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying names off the top of my head. These, none of these may be real people. I'm not sure. I don't think so. <laughs> I thought they were. I thought that was ah, genuinely was the short list there. I thought you were reading it out. Nah. And what about down London Way, Andy? Well, also actually from the Howl, I should say, a, a bit of London news. Um, Fulham have celebrated promotion by, by selling on their website a championship cheese board. No cheese provided, just a solid <laughs> slab of wood described as, as beige, uh, 20 quid. So now they're back dining at the top table, as people for some reason say about the Premier League. They, they wish they wouldn't. They really don't like that top table thing. But anyway, Fulham cheese board, um, you know, fill your boots. 
We probably only get one in the boot, actually, but still. Um, <laughs> um, we were asked uh, just recently if we'd be interested in publishing an English version of a biography of Gunter Netz, a German midfielder of the 70s, was a key player when they won the European Championships in 1972, which included winning quarterfinal tie at Wembley. And the, the book is called, the English translation of the book is called, the, the title is Wembley 1972 and Other Big Feats, F-E-A-T-S. But that... Is, is apparently a play on the fact that he's known in Germany for having really big feet, which I think may require a bit more of explaining to an, an English audience, possibly. Anyway, we haven't, we haven't published any books for a few years, so we're unable to help, but um, good luck to the publishers. <laughs> good luck to the publishers with that. Um, you may also have seen a picture leaked last week of what seems to be one of Newcastle's change strips for next season, which is white with green trim very similar to the Saudi Arabia national t- national team strip, might sell well in, say, Saudi Arabia, perhaps. Newcastle's uh, new owners, Public Investment Fund, of um, the same Saudi Arabia, because convinced the Premier League that they had no connection to the Saudi state before they took over. And uh, Lionel Messi has, has recently become Saudi Arabia's latest tourism ambassador. Um, Messi earned over $120 million last year in, in basic salary and sponsorship. But, I mean, I suppose you always need a bit more spare change. Don't you? It doesn't do you any help. David Beckham, of course, uh, it, this was reported a few months ago, but it has been mentioned again recently. Um, it, towards the end of last year, signed a 10-year deal to promote Qatar, which is worth £15 million a year to him. And what, what, what are they getting, getting for that? Probably not inspirational public speeches, I would think. Um, but then perhaps Beckham or, or Messi could, t- could take the, the line that um, Greg Norman, the golfer who's a, a involved, there's a new golf series that's being promoted in Saudi Arabia and the, the head of the Saudi Golf Foundation has just joined the board at Newcastle, funny enough, and Greg, Greg Norman was asked recently about his involvement in Saudi Arabia, about the, the murder of the, of the journalist Khashoggi uh, by, seemingly by the Saudi regime uh, his quote was um, Look, we've all made mistakes, and you just want to learn by those mistakes and how you can correct them going forward. So uh, that, that, that pretty much wraps it up, I think. Well said, Greg. <laughs> I don't understand that, the, the top table thing, because you, you'd, you'd be with the bride's father, wouldn't you, as he gets progressively <laughs> drunk and more and more resentful to having to pay for everything. Yeah, the bride's father and various in-laws who resent each other and stuff. It'd be a very... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they'd be, they'd bound to, it's bound to be a fight in the end. Yeah, and with everyone staring at you. Exactly, thinking that that bloke. So that's his fourth glass of wine, and they haven't even come and filled it. Come, come to give us a second yet. The other guests are thinking. And now it's time for me to repeat this. Inspired by modern football super clubs, we're delighted to announce that the When Saturday Comes podcast is going on its first ever tour to spread the brand around the world. Taking in non-league clubhouses up and down the country, the WSC team will be joined by some very special guests for evenings of half-decent football chat. Each event will also host a touring WSC photos exhibition showcasing some of the best images from the magazine's team of photographers. First up, Andy, Harry and I will be at South Shields on Thursday, June 16th from 7pm, where you can expect exotic snacks, live versions of features such as record breakers and, possibly, an appearance from a portable random topic generator. After that, there's a Euro 2022 special at Lewis FC on Thursday, June 30th, where, from 7pm, women's football experts Sophie Lawson and Jessie Parker-Humphreys join Anne-Marie Batson for an evening of Euros chat past and present. 
In November, we'll be heading to West Didsbury and Cholton for a World Cup warm-up. And then in December, you can join us for the WSC Christmas party at Dulwich Hamlet. Tickets are £20 or 15 for early birds if you're getting quick. See more details and get your tickets at whensaturdaycomes.eventbrite.co.uk. We look forward to seeing you all there. Issue 421 of When Saturday Comes magazine is out now. And joining me to probe its pages is Deputy Editor Tom Hocking. Tom, tell us about some of the contents in this month's issue. Hi, Dan. Thanks for that. So I guess let's start at the very bottom of the Football League this month, where relegated teams are are in an absolute mess. Oldham are probably the more widely publicised mess of the two, because they've been relegated amid fan protests against their owners, which have have halted games. And there's been quite a lot of, of coverage of this. And there's what what's quite interesting about it is there's quite an interest like a, a splintering of their fan base with with most wanting the owners to be gone but sort of disagreeing on on the best way to get that done so so Mike Wally has spoken to some of the fan groups about plans to try and bring them all together and create a sort of a plan of of collective action because as as someone from their supporters foundation said um we need to protest against the ownership but we also need to find solutions and and that's true because it's not just about getting the the current people out which is obviously very important at at Oldham but they need sort of a reliable and stable owner to come in and and stop the slide because you you've seen you know with clubs like Stockport County and and York City it's very easy to end up just crashing straight through the National League and and ending up in National League North and maybe even lower given all the mess that Oldham are in so it's it's not just about getting the owners out you know that some the only person who's openly said they're interested in buying Oldham at, at the time we went to print was um and someone who's involved in cryptocurrency, so that's not that's not necessarily um, a better direct. Although it's good to get the current people out, it's not necessarily better to have them in. Scunthorpe is is, is perhaps less well publicised, but they've had a, a really dramatic decline. They they're in League One playoffs just just four years ago, um, and now they're in non-league for the first time in in seventy two years. And, and I'm afraid there's not much optimism from the writer George. Young in, in in the article, and he sort of suggests that the National League is arguably looks stronger than League Two at the moment, which which is sort of a, a point of debate. I'm sure our listeners will have views on that, but, but it's certainly a strong league. And um, with Scunthorpe's sort of dwindling crowds, and the only way out may again be a takeover, um, and along the, they might be in for quite a long stint in in non-league because their their current owner is is very unpopular. He sort of allowed. Uh, a wage bill to spiral they they're spending up to 150 percent of turnover on on wages which is is obviously not a a good recipe before obviously having to to cut that down um he's failed to deliver on a new stadium to replace glanford park which is quite unloved i think among the the scumford fan base 
and he's since transferred ownership of of the ground to one of his own companies um supposedly to allow to, them to release funding but i i don't think that's ever a particularly good sign of a of a well-run club the, the good start that that george highlights to show how bad scunthorpe season is that they they got more red cards than they won games uh, <laughs> this season got five red cards and won four games if any reasonable and altruistic sort of business people are out there there's, there's possibly a a couple of bargain newly non-league clubs for them to put their money into because both are really looking for new ownership. Uh, elsewhere, we've got back up to the Premier League, we've got a bit of a contrasting story in Brighton um, who are having their best ever season. Uh, we sent Drew Whitworth along to the Amex. Drew, Drew's a, a Brighton fan and we went sent him along to the Amex for their game against Southampton, which was outside of, of Brighton and Southampton, possibly dismiss, dismissed as a bit of a, a nothing end of season game. But it turned out to be quite an exciting 2-2 draw. And it was almost exactly the 25th anniversary of the club leaving the Goldstone ground. The journey the club had been on in, in, in that time, Drew describes it as a definite U-shape. <laughs> <laughs> which is a very nice description and, and the fact that they're now getting crowds of 30,000 plus for this so-called nothing game at the end of the season is sort of a great testament to what what happens when you get a club that's sort of strongly linked to its community Brighton do some incredible community work so um yeah that that's sort of a very contrasting story to to Alderman Scunthorpe right at the bottom and Brighton have been you know down in those troubles so there, there's hope for Alderman Scunthorpe yet yeah, perhaps <laughs> and uh, accompanied that, that match of the month is accompanied by some lovely photos by Simon mm. Gill uh, the the Amex is does have a beautiful setting um among the hills so yeah the rolling downs yeah what else have we got this time tom so we've got a, a bit of a feature on um historic champions um so the fir- the first part of the feature is a reappraisal of ipswich's sort of incredible league title win 60 years on um and as gavin barber the notes in it uh, the ipswich town supporters association handbook for the following season it commenced by offering the highest praise and congratulations to all our players management etc uh, before swiftly moving on to remind members about their entitlement to accident insurance so that kind of low-key attitude towards the, the title win perhaps means it doesn't get as much recognition as it it deserves because there were some really interesting tactical innovations by Alf Ramsey that that got Ipswich there. But just on the pure fact that a team in their first ever season in the top division went on, just, just won the league, you know, that, that, that really is an incredible story that, that perhaps isn't talked about as much. Right? You know, if you're talking about surprise champions and, and things like that, you maybe look at Nottingham Forest first or someone, but, but that Ipswich win is, is incredible. So it's a really interesting look back at that by Gavin Barber, who who is a an Ipswich fan. And the other part of that feature, looking at champions, is is it's 30 years ago that um, the National Premier Division was formed in the women's leagues. And it's Katia Whitney who was one of our participants in our mentoring scheme for aspiring female journalists recently. She uh, had a look at Doncaster Bells, who who dominated the the that launch season and won the double um and she, uh, Katia spoke to Karen Walker about that season and Karen Walker was the the first person to score a hat-trick in every single round of the FA Cup including obviously the final that they won to complete the the double it was a really interesting time that because obviously it was the start of women's divisions sort of changing quite significantly in in the coming years and Doncaster Bells 
were they they won the double again in a, a couple of years. But sandwiched between the Doncaster Bells double double was Arsenal, who won a double in you know sort of the next season. So it's sort of an interesting time period of the changing of these independent women's clubs who basically kept the game going for the women's game going um, on their own with very little funding and the sort of the start of clubs like Arsenal getting involved and now obviously you see Chelsea and Man City and Man United all using their money the story of the Bells ends up that they, they end up being demoted during the 2013 restructuring of the of the Women's Super League which was a pretty disgraceful decision and sort of all of that history and all of that independence um, although they did merge with Doncaster Rovers for a few years and they do have close ties to Doncaster Rovers. Yeah a really interesting look at how how things have changed over 30 years in in the women's game. Mm. On the subject of controversial choices in the women's game we've also got Adam Millington on a slightly on the slightly bizarre choices um, for venues of Euro 2022 this summer. So one of the stadiums is Manchester City's academy ground, which can't even hold 5,000 people. Mm-hmm. And obviously sold Iceland are one of the teams playing there with a, a hugely popular international team. They sold out almost immediately, those tickets, obviously, because, you know, it's a it's a major tournament and it's being some of one of the venues can't even hold 5,000 people. So, yeah, it's also a bizarre spread of grounds. There's none in the West Midlands or the Northeast, which, are, you know, the Northeast is a, a bit of a, a hotbed of, of women's football and has produced a lot of great women's footballers. As Adam says, at every point in the planning, it seems like decisions have been made which won't allow the tournament to flourish. And incidentally, our wall chart for the tournament is out in the next issue. So keep an eye out for that. And our T-shirt for the tournament, which celebrates the tournament is is now available. So make sure you get ready for the summer by getting very that. lovely. It is too and fetching yes. purple. It is yes. <laughs> That's my fashion contribution. Yeah, fetching yeah. purple. Good. Yeah, yeah. Like a man oh, it's, not, it's not a fashion podcast, Dan. It's not a fashion <laughs> podcast. Come on. <laughs> I don't think I've ever used the word fetching before. I enjoyed the throwback yeah. of it all. And what, any anything else in the magazine? Well, there's lots in the magazine, but anything you want to bring to our attention? Yeah, I mean, it, obviously, it's. Like there's a, there's a huge range of subjects. Um, I guess speaking of venues, we've got an extract from from the Cup by Richard Whitehead, which looks at FA Cup finals <laughs> da- venues down the down the years, um, from the Oval to the New Wembley. Um, Richard's book is the Cup is is a mainly photography book with 500 word accompanying articles on on various subjects, and the the photos that accompany it are, are sort of brilliant early. FA Cup, sort of where the FA Cup really gets its history from, and then unusually for WSC, we've we've got some stuff on the on the sort of the so-called super clubs. So um, we've got something on on Lionel Messi's first season at, at Paris Saint Germain and how it's it's all gone a bit wrong, even though they've obviously won the league. You know, don't think anyone would expect otherwise. It, it's kind of Messi really hasn't taken to PSG and PSG haven't really taken to him, which is quite funny for outsiders. Um, but also <laughs> it's quite interesting in terms of, don't know what you mean. of PSG's, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, but it is kind of interesting in terms of PSG's future and, you know, what, what direction they're, they're going in with all of this money because they're so messy. But, but in terms of, are they going to build a, a team around someone who's clearly a bit of a fading star, although his genius is, is not really um, debated, but he is fading and they've 
pumped a lot of money into this and everyone would hate to see PSG lose a lot of money. <laughs> but, but, um, yeah, it, it is quite an interesting topic. And also similarly high profile stuff is Manchester United sort of seemingly endless search for an Alex Ferguson replacement. And yeah, their their latest attempts are jo- Joyce Woolridge very good on explaining yeah the, the, the process and they really they haven't got anything right so far. They, they Nothing seems to be sticking. To balance all of that out, we've got um, a shot photography triple bill so in the in the West Cheshire League by Colin McPherson, which which takes in Asheville and Mossley Hill and Chester Nomads. So we don't just concentrate on the big just to stop those yeah <laughs> stop those accusations right there. <laughs> oh, another brilliant issue. Do go out and get it. Cheers Tom. Jackpot tickets. Pound a go. Draw it half time. Five hundred pound prize draw. Get your scarves and pin badges. Your hats and scarves and pin badges. Get your hats and scarves and pin badges. Pin badges, hats, scarves. Hats and scarves and pin badges. Programs. 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 Subscribe to When Saturday Comes and you'll get every issue delivered direct to your door in 100% recyclable wrapping, which we used to call a paper envelope. You'll also save money on the shop price, receive discounts on books and t-shirts and get free access to our complete digital archive. Sign up at shop.wsc.co.uk Jackpot tickets, pound a go, draw it half time, 500 pounds, yours to take on tonight. Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove, here we go. Yobi Desert Stars FC... Adrian Whitbread, Inside the Secret Lives of Programme Sellers, and it's landed on Unexpected Promotions and Relegations. Ooh, how timely. Harry, let's split that into which relegations you can have. Does that bring to mind? Um, well, the, the funny thing is with relegations is that obviously what we think of as the great escape for one team. One team is the Red Adair and the other is the, and the, other is the fire that doesn't get put out. <laughs> I don't know, the other, whatever that is, I don't know. The fire that continues to rage. And so what I think of is um, the 86-87 um, fourth division season. I obviously think of the police Alsatian named Bryn. Oh, yes. Who played a terrible part. But the, the unexpected relegation in that, of course, was Lincoln City. Uh, Lincoln had been, at the, in that season, on New Year's Day, they were seventh. Uh, in the table, and then fell away dramatically. So that on the last day of the season, Burnley were bottom with 46 points, Torquay United next with 47, and Lincoln third on 48. Torquay had the better goal difference. Burnley famously, of course, won 2-0 at Turf Moor in front of a crowd of 15,000, so that saved them. Uh, Lincoln lost 2-0, and then, of course, at playing more, the, the goals were losing 2-1 to Crewe, and then with about four minutes left, a police dog bit Jimmy McNichol. And he, he actually had 17 stitches in the wound, but they'd already made their substitution. So they had to treat him on the pitch and get him sort of patched up. But it delayed it by it delayed the game by five minutes. And of course, people with people with radios in the crowd, long before, of course, the internet and all that sort of stuff, people told that the Torquay players knew that Lincoln had lost 2-0 and they were losing 2-1. All they needed to do was draw. And of course, they they got the Paul Dobson got the equaliser four minutes from the end, four minutes or four minutes into injury time rather. So, and that sent Lincoln into the uh, into the National League. 
Um, so Lincoln with an unexpected relegation for Lincoln. Of course, everyone sees it as a great escape for Torquay, but as I say, disaster for Lincoln. Uh, similar thing befell uh, Norwich City as well in 84-85. Uh, Again, another thing, the great escape, people would say, uh, for Coventry City that year. Um, but Norwich, they'd won the Milk Cup. And the last, I think the last game of the season, they beat Chelsea and they were eight points clear of the relegation zone, but they'd, they'd already played all their games extraordinarily, where Coventry City had three games left. Coventry City's manager at that time, I should say, was Don Mackay, whose middle name is Scrimgeour, <laughs> S-C-R-I-M-G-E-O-U-R. Anyway, but if there's a more unusual middle name in football than that, I'm, I'm, I'd like to see it. Um, it looks like a sort of word, one of those words that people use in Scrabble, and then everyone has to look it up in the dictionary, doesn't it? It's a scrimgeour. No, it's a anyway. Um, so Coventry had three games left to play. Norwich would have must have felt pretty pretty safe, but Coventry won the first two games one nil against Stoke and Luton. And then in the final game, they were playing the champions, Everton. Uh, Everton completely exhausted, I believe, is is the general explanation. And, of course, uh, Coventry won 4-1. So Norwich uh, went down that season unexpectedly. And Ken Brown, who was the the manager of Norwich, he was a very very charming man. And he said said of the relegation, we said that if Coventry won all three games to Pippers at the post, they deserve it. Hats off to them. That's, I'm pretty sure that's what Frank Lampard will say. Doesn't <laughs> go down this season, mighty Andy. I'm sure, yes. <laughs> and Andy, how about some unexpected promotions? Well, from the one of the uh, we talk about sort of classic sort of conference level clubs, and uh, one who I've actually got into the league and, and higher still, actually Morecambe, when they went up to League One two years ago, they were expected had been expected to be relegated out of the league in our pre-season preview for that season. They've been pre- predicted to finish 23rd. Instead, they went up in the playoffs and have now survived their first season in League One. They initially lost the manager, took them up Derek Adams, who went to Bradford City, but he's since come back after being sacked by Bradford. The team that went up, I gather, wasn't especially popular with the fans. They played in a fairly uncompromising way. And there was also an alleged incident the season with some of the fans' alleged racist incident they came against Bolton. But Nonetheless, I mean, quite a, a, a real achievement for having been tipped to go down to get to go up and to stay up the high level for a, at least a year. My favourite fact about Morecambe is that the, the cousin of Eric Morecambe, of course, was from Morecambe, uh, who was called Wiggy Threlfall, ran the supporters <laughs> club for a long time. He didn't miss a home game in, in like 30 years or so. Of course, Eric Morecambe would have a cousin who was called Wiggy. Of course, that it makes perfect sense. 40 miles or so away, Blackpool, uh, the promotion... From the Championship to the Premier League in, in 2009-10, the first time back at the top level in um, at, the, at the top table, first time dining at the top table in 39 years. They'd been in the bottom half of the Championship for a couple of years after coming up. They won six of their last eight games, and they finished sixth in the final playoff place by a point ahead of Swansea, and they then beat Forest and Cardiff in in the playoff finals. And generally seen, I think is a a, a, a good footballing team. The key players, Brett Ormrod, who scored the winning goal in the playoff final, Charlie Adam, Seamus Coleman, who's on loan from Everton. That's where he sort of first started to make a bit of a name for himself. And DJ Campbell, a rare case of a footballer known by his initials, who was on loan from Leicester. And he scored eight in 15 in the second half of the season to help to turn them up. They also Blackpool did pretty well in their one season up. They beat Liverpool home and away. And they went down with, with 39 points. They needed to win at Man United on the final day to have a chance to stand up. And we were 2-1 up at one point in the second half, but but lost 4-2. And um, the, the manager at the time was, was the, the plain-speaking Ian Holloway, who, who did do pretty well 
had a few clubs, of course, less so perhaps in some of his later jobs. I think Grimsby fans weren't very uh, keen on him. And then Blackpool, of course, then had loads of shenanigans behind the scenes with their ownership, and they had a couple more relegations. And there was a fan boycott of the League Two playoff final they played in at Wembley, but they are now back on an even keel um, in the Championship. And I think it'd be in Holloway, actually. I remember one of our photographers when in Holloway was at QPR. He was taking some photos there and he was in the canteen at the training ground. In Holloway was telling off a young player who'd just been sent off in a reserve game for the second time. And he, he started off by saying, What's the definition of stupidity? Now that's the kid said, oh, I don't know, boss. And he said, Making the same mistake twice. Then he goes on to tell him not to go because he apparently been sent off uh, before. And because if the kid had said, making the same mistake twice in the answer to the question and where would the kind of conversation have gone now that would have derailed <laughs> things wouldn't it that's a sort of school teacher habit of asking someone a question that you that you know they don't know the answer to but anyway sorry i don't want to a bit of a diversion there um <laughs> another one uh, charlton and wimbledon both going up from division two to what was then division one in 85 86 Charlton had to move out of the valley in, in the autumn that year when they were they were fifth and they started to ground show at sellers park and they were um, seven years away in the end, also grand sharing at Upton Park, but they they finished second in that first exile season. They spent four years in Division One, also a, a long time having been away for long time, been away for thirty years, and which is a fantastic achievement by Lenny Lawrence, probably the second most popular Charlton manager, I think, with fans after Alan Kirbish and the manager of Middlesbrough later, with I think. Mm. But I mean, the, the you can imagine also a little bit the frustration of that time for Charlton fans in a way that obviously the frustration of being in exile, it's offset if you're doing well, but also still. Frustrating that you know that your crowds in this good spell wouldn't would have been so much better if if you'd been at home. Charlton certainly the crowds were a few thousand down. I would think on on what they would have got if they'd been playing in the the, the top level um, at the Valley. Now Wimbledon also going up. They'd finished twelfth the previous year, and prior to that had either gone up or down for seven years in a row. And that's the record, the up or down record that Roslyn would need will equal if they go down again next season. I saw that Wimbledon's last home game of that season. Actually, I, I was living in. South London, just about walking distance from Plough Lane, and and they beat Stoke one nil. And there were the two. I remember that there were two old men, or well, they seem old. I was going to say they're actually in the sixties, so possibly only about two years older than I am now. <laughs> but um, they were standing beside me, and one of them said to the other, "Did you see the FA Cup tie against Southend in 1935?" I don't know if he recognised the other fellow from that day and hadn't seen him since, and was then was going to say, "Because you still owe me, you still owe me tuppence." You know, the other, the other, the, but the other said no, he hadn't been at the match, or perhaps he had, he had, and he'd realised he'd been rumbled and thought, you know, if he if he charges me interest, I'm in trouble. I'm, I'm headed for the workhouse <laughs> after <laughs> the forty five years, whatever it was. Wimbledon, of course, managed by Dave Bassett, and of course, not always popular with neutrals, even though they were certainly a small club with a budget, a, a fraction of of many of the teams they played, and a lot of people did enjoy them winning the the cup final in eighty eight against them. Were very. Um, feisty collection of individuals, of course, Dennis Wise, Vinnie Jones, John Fashionew. Hard to warm to, I think, in, in some ways, but nonetheless did stay up for, for 14 years until uh, 1999. Going back a few of those clubs and figures, and in fact, a question we had in the Patreon-only section about questions, a, a manager I'd like to see come back is Lenny Lawrence, who is still involved in the game. He was popular at Charlton, but left in difficult circumstances when he went to Middlesbrough because 
on one day just after this the season had ended he was he did a promotional thing for Charlton Athletic in one of those face in the hole board things that you get at the seaside or a sprof tackle I believe they're called um let's give them the technical I name. think they might be called a scrimgeour <laughs> I think they might be as well and it was a, it was an appeal for transfer funds from fans for Charlton to buy players but Lenny was the face of that who will you give me next season but the very next day he was giving a press conference as the new Middlesbrough manager uh, so a, a meaningless face in the whole campaign from Lawrence I believe he still lives in Yarm. They all do. I think every ex-Middlesbrough manager does. <laughs> I've got a connection to an unexpected almost promotion because I, I, I got on the bus at Darlington the other day and, and Mike Amos, um, legendary sports reporter mm. and a correspondent to when Saturday comes, um, and he was he got a phone call while I, was, <laughs> while I was on the bus with him because the promotion into the Northern League Second Division from the Wearside League there was controversy over that because on the final game of the season, Chesley Street Town were leading uh, the, in the, the top of the Wearside League, and Darlington Town was second. And Darlington, in order to get, in order to finish top of the table, Darlington needed Chesley Street to drop points, and also they needed to overcome the fact that Chesley Street had a goal difference advantage of eleven over Darlington, and Darlington Town were playing Anfield Plain. Uh, Chesterley Street against Wolverston and Chesterley Street drew and Darlington Town beat Anfield Plain 19-0. But the phone call that my game was got was because someone said they were at the game and they had they had counted the goals. They made a note of the goals and actually it was 20-0. And the, and the man said he'd had that corroborated by someone else independently who was also counting the goals. So there's there's men standing around the touchline actually making a note of the goals. So anyway, so twenty nil. But the but in the end, Chesley Street Town still got promoted because Darlington Town's ground failed the uh, the FA requirements. So there we are. Failed the fitness test. But also, we were talking about you know talked about David Pleat coming back. Of course, he was also involved in a famous when Man City got relegated, perhaps unexpectedly. Um, with uh, when when Luton beat them, a Radiantic goal. But one of the things about that was that. Bizarrely, Manchester City had Eddie Large in the dugout with them. I don't know how that would help. Was Sid Little in the other dugout? Maybe he was. Maybe that was. Maybe that was why Luton won. Inspired it was a skit. <laughs> Eddie, Eddie Large was in the dugout for, with Man City at the Cup final against Spurs in '81. It didn't help them then either. He was. A, he, Eddie Large was a Jonah. <laughs> It's time for the part of the podcast where one of us chooses a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Andy, what's your choice this time? Well, it's a momentous one. It's my first English record. I've I've been on the continent, yes, and in Latin America the whole time so far. But I thought I'd commemorate Exeter City, another promotion this season. Um, uh, Exeter, this is called Swing Along With City by ESR, Exeter Sound Recording. Uh, it seems to have come out in 1979, which wasn't celebrating a promotion at the time, but obviously a good time to play because Exeter got automatic uh, promotion from League 2 this year, having lost in the playoffs three times in the last five years. So maybe it's time for a new record, something a bit bit with it. I don't know, uh, K-pop maybe or uh, Skiffle, <laughs> something like that. <laughs>
Now it's time for our rapidly maturing feature, The Final Third, in which we ask someone to help us build a football museum by donating a match, a player and an object. This time I'm joined by Ned Bolting, writer, broadcaster and author of a new book, Square Peg, Round Ball. Ned, thank you so much for joining me. Hot from the studios of Five Live and Adrian Charles. This week, as we speak, Adrian has been in the news for confessing that he has a urinal, a urinal in his yeah. house. I mean, yeah. recently I bought a turnstile from Booth and Crescent. And did you? I did look at the toilets that were at the auction, but I didn't quite go that far. Is that a step too far? I think it's a step too far. I mean, I think urinals in your house are a step too far, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. But um, yeah, someone suggested, I mean, I come from the world of cycling now. Uh, very much. And, um, the, and one of the famous bike races in the cycling calendar is a race called Paris-Roubaix, um, which is nearly 300 kilometres long, most of which is raced over cobbled farm tracks. And it's an insane act of endurance. And in the end, it finishes in this tumble down old velodrome in a, in a suburb of Lille in northern France. And the riders make their way towards these tumble down shower blocks, which have been there for the best part of 100 years. And it's a bit of a tradition that they all shower in these shower blocks. So someone suggested to me that my equivalent of the Adrian Child's urinal should be to have a Paris-Roubaix shower block uh, <laughs> built into my house. So I, I quite like the idea of that. But yeah, pinching. It's just the idea. It's just the idea of how many people have used it down the year. It's There are many old football ground smells I missed, particularly tobacco, but not those massive square blocks, soapy, weird blocks that you got in football urine. I don't want that rising through my house i have to say no no because i mean it's a, it's a penetrating liquid isn't it it does uh, eventually seep into the fabric of the building and, and once you've reached that point there's no going back <laughs> demolish it build a build a nice clean kassam stadium or something like that in its place because everybody loves stadiums like that don't they yeah <laughs> Well, listeners to this podcast will know your voice from uh, your career, your long career in broadcasting, television, radio, podcast, all the rest, but also because they hear your voice at the moment, at the very start of this podcast, in an advert for your wonderful new book, Square Peg, Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, published by Bloomsbury, out now and available, of course, in the Win Saturday Comes shop as well as elsewhere. Just tell us a little about what the book is why you wrote it, that kind of standard question, Ned. Standard question. Well, I, I tell you what, when I was contacted, um, they said, you know, a publicist said, when Saturday comes, wants to interview you for the podcast, I have to say my blood ran cold because because you still, you guys still set the benchmark for savaging uh, books about football written by people off the telly um, with the famous, famous Tim Lowe. Tim Lovejoy <laughs> book review uh, of back in the day. So I thought, oh my God, what are they going to, what are they going to make of me, and how will that go? Um, because it is a book written about a bloke who's worked in the telly, has worked, and has come to an end of my journey uh, in football and television. And, and that, I mean, that happened partly because, partly because I was working for a broadcaster that was losing a lot of rights to show live football. So in essence, had less and less available work for me to do. So partly, I won't deny my hand was forced. Uh, but equally, um, and that that broadcast being ITV, by the way, ITV Sport, uh, but equally, I'd, I'd run my course with it. And uh, uh, for the last sort of three or four years of working in football, I went to work with a with a very heavy heart, not particularly enjoying it for a variety of different reasons. So that's the kind of rather, <laughs> the rather downbeat ending um, to the book. I mean, it doesn't quite end like that because I've subsequently discovered that being away from football in, in a number of ways has rekindled my understanding and my passion for it entirely now that I can watch completely from the outside. But really, the point of the book is, is uh, that we all come 
to football, those of us who do, and that is most people on earth, come to football in our own different ways and have our own different narratives and our own different introductions. Mine was quite unusual for a variety of different reasons. And my love for the game burnt brightly, incandescently, obsessively, you know, for a couple of decades before exposure to to the game at its very, very absurd high levels um, kind of uh, queered the pitch a little bit for me and then soured uh, the experience. But up till then, up till then, I was engrossed in it and I lived, slept, breathed, thought about it. And, and it functioned in so many ways in my life, not least as a proxy for taking myself seriously as a sentient adult human being and actually doing something with my life. It was far easier just to sort of disappear into into uh, football fandom and all its uh, different facets. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it has, in a way, occupied a large chunk of my life, as it does for a lot of us. And I think this book will chime, perhaps with those of us, maybe of a certain age, I'll confess, who are finding the game a little harder to love than they once did. So what's the lineup of the book? You know, how does it work in terms of chapters? Is it chronological? It is chronological, which is often the best way to write a book, I find. <laughs> I'll, I'll, never forget, I'll never forget making a football documentary in an edit suite years ago in, in Soho, years and years ago. And next door to me, there was an, uh, uh, an Irish filmmaker making a film about the life of Bob Geldof uh, for BBC4. And um, we got to know each other because we were sitting in, you know, side by side in edit suites. And this guy, I can't remember his name, he was convinced he was reinventing the whole genre of film because he said, I'm telling the story backwards. <laughs> it's just going to be brilliant and it's going to change everything. And I remember he kind of soldiered through it and he looked day after day, looking more and more despondent. <laughs> and I'd ask him, how's the, how's the editing going? And he went, oh, don't ask. And then eventually a BBC4 commissioner came to watch a viewing. And uh, I remember just the noise of breaking glass and things being thrown around. <laughs> because it turns out the best way to tell a story is often to begin at the beginning. And to do the middle at the middle and to, to do the end at the end. So briefly, it it documents how I, there's a brief bit about my dad's relationship to Chelsea Football Club, which is quite important, actually, because he tried and failed to implant the, the love for Chelsea in me. In fact, the love for Chelsea turned into a really quite deep set antipathy for Chelsea later. But... Uh, the, the key point in, in my journey came when I went as a in my early 20s for about four or five years I went to live in Hamburg mm. and it was there it was there that I discovered St Pauli um, mm. I was given a ticket by a friend and uh, I, I, honestly from the very first moment I went to Milan tour and watched a match in the, the Bundesliga we were actually in the Bundesliga that year rather than being in the second division um, I was spellbound by the experience and that was when that was when the penny dropped for me oh this is football it's not just something that happens on the telly. It's not just something that happens down the line with a crackly phone commentary from Brian Moore every other summer. It's it's actually a real thing played out in this in this theatre that is a that is Millentor in this case, whose floodlights fail, whose fans aren't really watching the match, and whose football team parade ineptly up and down this muddy pitch in their brown and white kit. And I loved it. I was enthralled. <laughs> The, the clip we, of your voice we play at the start of the podcast in the advert at the moment is exactly about that moment. So that's a really perfect example to give. I did look up the song that you mentioned, but it was about the Reaper band, so I didn't know if I should play it, and I, I elected against it in the end. I don't know how dodgy the lyrics are in that's 2022 fine. standards. It's fine. There, there's a slight association but with the singer with the uh, National Socialist Movement later on. Oh, well. We can airbrush that. <laughs> you know. But, you know it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to bother the Tank Powerly fans, so it shouldn't bother us. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, as well as talking about Square Peg Round Ball, you are this episode of the podcast guest curator for the When Saturday Comes Museum. It doesn't actually exist, but who knows, one day we may get yeah, funding nice. to put yeah. some footballers mm. in a glass case. Yeah. So first yeah. of all, I'm going to ask you to contribute to the museum a match of your choosing. Well, I have plumped, and this may surprise you, because it it's for me, it's not the first club uh, that uh, tends to tends to feature when you talk about sparkling, crackling, and evenings entertainment. But I'm going to pick a Middlesbrough match. Oh, um, yes, I knew that would surprise you. Um, my team was well, my team, Ned. So it's your team. I was there. Yes. I would, if you weren't there, then you should uh, resign as a, not just as a Middlesbrough fan, as a human, as a human, really, because it was your high point, and it will be forever your high point. It was when you achieved a place in the 2006 UEFA Cup final. Oh, I was there. Stoy Bucharest. Stoy Bucharest. Of course, you yeah. can't tell the story of that semi-final without telling the story partly of the quarter-final against Basel, which finished. Uh, an aggregate four or three on aggregate as a Basel match, wasn't it? And uh, and Star Bucharest uh, was a similar story. <laughs> and I was there doing the interviews and sort of oh. the features on, but on all that, and the, the entire Middlesbrough Cup run that which started with that insane phase of kind of a double group phase. Do you remember? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and a bit of a knockout round in between the two groups was there or something. I can't. Yes, remember. and was... I've got I've got all the half and half scars, which you're not to admit these days, but they were. Uh... A pleasurable thing about European football, I felt at the time, five pound piece. So yeah, because you played some, you played some absolutely batshit teams in those. Litex Lovech and Zamat. Litex Lovech. That's right. There were times. Trouble numbers. <laughs> there were times where I used to go. So on the eve of the match, Litex Lovech and Dnipro Dnipro Petrovsk. Yeah? yeah, they they would hold press conferences at the Riverside um, uh, because they had to. It was a UEFA obligation. And there were no people attending. And, and I used to go out of a sense of embarrassment and duty and loyalty simply to ask one token question, and then everyone could go home. But then all of a sudden, but you have to remember, before I talk about the match, you have to remember that in the background to, to this entire saga of how you got to the, was the selection process to be the next England manager. Yeah. And I, it's so long ago now, 2006, that I can't quite remember how Steve McLaren had started to fall by the wayside. Uh, but he had, I can't remember, you know, he fell out of the reckoning and the bookies were making him third favourite for the job or something like that, um, while he struggled through the, the groups against Litex Lovich and um, Dnipro Dnipro Petrovsk, etc. But then came the quarterfinal and the semi-final, both of which propelled Steve McLaren into this position where they couldn't not pick him to be Sven Joran Eriksson's successor, which was quite remarkable. The point being, the point being about Steve McLaren's tactical genius was he had at his disposal in both the Basel match and the Star Bucharest match four aging but high caliber strikers in Yakubu, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, Mark Viduka, and Massimo Macaroni, who cost you what eight million quid? Yes, eight and a half, I think. Yeah. Eight and a half million quid. He had these four centre forwards. And uh, in the second half, I think I'm right in saying, in both matches, he had to get four goals in the second half or, or at least three goals in the second half to get through, right? And uh, so he he put four strikers on the pitch. <laughs> which, which, frankly, is what I would do if I was a football manager. I'd go, well, hang on, I've got a tactical problem. I need to get four goals. I put four centre-forwards on. And um, that should never work. And it worked once against Basel, and it was an amazing night, an incredible experience. And lightning struck the Riverside that night. But there was no way on God's earth that Steve McLaren, the incoming tactical genius who was going to steer England to World Cup glory, uh, was going to be faced with the same predicament 
in the semi-final and come up with the same tactics and get the same result. And it worked. (laughs) And to this day, I think that is an unrepeatable sequence of events. And it was completely compelling to watch. But it it was a miracle. It was the Middlesbrough miracle. Oh, beautiful. And it's almost like we fixed it and yet we didn't. I could do at least another three hours on that match alone, but this is not about me. It's about you. And so I'll move on and ask you to donate to the museum a player. Maybe it's Massimo Macaroni and that beautiful bald head. I don't know. No, it's not Massimo Macaroni. Much as I'd like to. uh, um, I want to go back to my St. Pauli days. And um, there will be, because when Saturday comes, it's full of St. Pauli fans, I would imagine. It's core listenership. And um those of you might remember that the, the, the team of the early 90s who I fell in love with, there were some big name players. Actually, there weren't some big name players. But there was Bernhard Olk. There was Dieter Schlindfein. There was Peter Knebel in midfield. Um, uh, there was the, the famous Brazilian striker. We signed a Brazilian uh, who the Bild site, so Die Welt, dis, uh, described in print soon after his signing as being the only Brazilian seemingly who can't play football. Um, but my favourite of all the players was Bernd Hollerbach, because he was our only genuinely exciting player. And if I can read one paragraph from the book, because I can't phrase it any better than how I wrote it when I had a bit of time, uh, it's this. There was Bernd Hollerbach, a ridiculously bandy-legged and short-arsed winger, who was just about Pauli's only genuinely exciting player. He possessed the occasional ability to dribble uncontrollably in a style that meant he teetered on the brink of total ignominy, as if he were trying to play Jenga on a unicycle. Receiving the ball wide on the right, with a bit of space in front of him, the crowd would roar with sudden anticipation. Moments later, they'd be groaning in unison, then swearing, then laughing. Hollerbach, du vollidiot! Once, I saw him lose control of the ball as he bore down on the keeper in the pouring rain, fall over, continue to slide at the same pace as the ball, reach out a hand and gently guide the ball around the advancing goalie and over the line to score a rare but legally questionable goal. Hollebach was sent off and Millentor shook with laughter and outrage. (laughs) I've I've not given him any uh, any thought recently until you asked me this question. And I've just found out that he's in management and he is managing, I don't know how to pronounce it, St. Truden of the Belgian First Division A. But he had a spell, shamefully, as the assistant manager at SV Hamburg, which is a treacherous thing to do for a St. Pauli player. But Bernd Hollerbach is my player who gets into the, the museum, if that's okay. Wonderful. He'll look excellent inside a glass case or a model of him because we can't have the real thing. As he's no, because he's, well, he's, he's, he's busy in Belgium, isn't he? You, so you can't. And now I'd like you to, to recommend to the museum an object for our delectation. Well, it's quite a big object, but it is uh, Roy Hodgson's Library of Czech Existentialist Literature. <laughs> Uh, I, um, I, uh, which I know exists. Um, I remember when he first arrived at Blackburn Rovers, having been the Inter Milan manager. None of us really knew that much about him, but some clever clogs wrote an article, a profile about him. Uh, and on my way up to interview him for the first time in my very, very, very early years at Sky, I had read this article. I can't remember who'd written it, but it had said that um, he was a fan of Czech existentialist literature, and in particular, the unbearable lightness of being by Milan Kundera. Uh, which a lot of people of our generation had read, and it's a very good book. Um, but I was quite into my Czech existentialist literature, and I was also deeply pretentious back then, and still am now. And um, I thought when I got up to the training ground at Blackburn Rovers, I would test his credentials to see whether this was just a bit of spin or whether he was the real deal. So I said to him, just when we were waiting for the interview to start, I said, Roy, um, I was interested to read <laughs> that you are a fan of uh, The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera. 
because I'm more of a, I don't know whether you've read um, Josef Svorevsky's The Engineer of Human Souls. <laughs> and without batting an eyelid or blinking, he said, well, it's a good book, but I'm more of a fan of the mournful demeanour of Lieutenant Burovka <laughs> <laughs> by Josef Svorevsky, which shut me up good and proper. So, you, just did, you did not get that with Dave Bassett, did you? You didn't get it with Dave Bassett, but you did get it with Roy. He's the genuine article, and he's a man who does have at home a big and comprehensive collection of Czech existentialist literature. So that goes in your museum. We shall find the room. That, that's a beautiful addition. Okay. Well, after all that heavy thinking and consideration, yes. the stomach will be empty, the mouth droopy <laughs> with thirst. Can well, you give us a snack for our museum cafe? Well, you might have it already. You might be serving it already. How many how many snacks have already gone in this museum? Oh, half a dozen at least. Oh, half a dozen. It's unlikely that you... Well, let's see. I would nominate Agbara Soup from Kidderminster Harriers. Oh, no, I've not got that, no. Okay. Have you ever tasted it? No. Oh, okay. It's a famous vegetable-based soup. that that is It's great for the first... I mean, they sell it in a couple of stands around the ground, and it's quite well known in the area. It's quite thick, quite, uh, quite I'd say quite saturated with... Uh, potato and carrot and stuff like it's good though it's really on the right weather conditions mm-hmm. and it's outstanding for the first uh <laughs> two-thirds of the polystyrene cup you get it served in and then i've never seen anyone actually finish one but the first two-thirds are sensational as i can confirm because the first time i ever had it i was stood next to alan irvine um the the, the former where's he managed all over the place hasn't he alan Irvine, the scottish international yeah. manager and assistant manager and caretaker manager and um we bought our soup together and had a painfully sort of self-conscious chat about it. And neither of us finished our Agbara <laughs> soup on that occasion. And we both walked off in separate directions. And I'm pretty sure as soon as we were out of sight of each other, we jettisoned the remaining cold bit. It's really good. It is really good. So Agbara soup. It could be a special, I think, the Agbara soup. It's very, yeah. very, <laughs> very niche. I like it. Ned, thank you. A superb Pleasure. curator. And the book is out now. Square peg, round ball. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Do join me, Andy and Harry, again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter.